0: Hello, and welcome to Gleebooks Author Talks. We've partnered with 2SER to bring you a live recording of our events, held in one of Sydney's oldest independent bookshops. All right. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Gleebooks. Books. My name's James. I'm the events manager here at the shop. Uh, and as always, it's a pleasure to be here on behalf of the store, but also on behalf of Meanjin Quarterly. Before we begin the proceedings tonight, I want to take a moment to acknowledge and pay my respects to the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. It's on their ancestral lands that Gleebus is built, and I think it's important that we take a little bit of time to remember that and to reflect on what that means for each of us. Now to introduce Dr. Michael Muhammad Ahmad and Khalid Wasami. Muhammad is the founding director of Sweatshop. A literacy, a literacy movement in Western Sydney, devoted to empowering culturally and linguistically diverse artists through creative writing. His most recent novel, The Lebs, was shortlisted for the Miles Franklin Literary Award, while his essays and short stories have appeared in a number of different publications, such as The Guardian, The Lifted Brow, and of course, Mianjin. His essay for the spring issue is called Reading Malcolm X in Arab Australia. Khalid Wasami is a writer and arts producer whose fiction has appeared in The Lifted Brow, Overland, The Big Issue, and Cordite Poetry Review. He previously edited fiction for The Lifted Brow, worked as a creative producer at the Footscray Community Arts Centre, co-directed the National Young Writers Festival and as a contributor to Growing Up African in Australia. His essay in the spring issue is called This Vast Conspiracy of Memory. Tonight, Mohamed and Khalid are in conversation with Sarah Saleh. Sarah is an award-winning Arab Australian poet, human rights activist and a long-time campaigner for refugee rights and racial justice. She's worked for Amnesty International, Care International, and has edited the wonderful collection of essays, Arab, Australian, Other. I'm just incredibly thrilled to have these wonderful authors with us here tonight, so please join me in welcoming Mohammed Khalid, and Sarah.
1: Thank you. Good evening, everyone. Salaam. Salaam alaikum. Uh, it's nice to be here with you all. And before I begin, I'd also like to echo the sentiments uh, that were stated earlier and acknowledge my respects to the traditional custodians of the land, the Gadigal of the Eora Nation. Um, This land is, was, and always will be aboriginal land. This tarot was not nullius. Sovereignty was never ceded, and I think uh, as someone who is a daughter of Palestinian migrants, um, for me it is particularly important that um, when we talk about this, we go beyond the symbolism, and that we commit to, uh, as as settler, uh, you know, as people who are privileged enough to be here, that we commit to the struggle for Indigenous justice in Australia. Now. As James mentioned earlier, uh, I'm one of the editors of Arab Australian Other, which incidentally is being sold here tonight. And that's not a shameless plug because uh, it also includes a chapter from uh, Mohammed. And the chapter is actually a precursor to the essay in Mianjin, a precursor of sorts. Is that correct? So get right to it. In 1993, the New York Times wrote that one form of ethnic bigotry retains an aura of respectability in the United States, and that's prejudice against Arabs. They were seen as billionaires, bombers, belly dancers, boisterous bargainers, and barbaric. I would probably use a stronger word than prejudice against Arabs. The dehumanization of Arabs was further reinforced during the Gulf War, the OPEC oil crisis of the, of the 70s, the existence of Israel on stolen Palestinian land, and Israel's relationship with its majority Arab neighbors, plus the history of Orientalism that is of course embedded in colonization. Obviously, there are parallels and disparities between the Arab American and Arab Australian experience. Has this same aura of anti-Arab respectability been a feature of growing up Arab here in Australia, Mohammed?
2: Um. That's a really interesting question to start with. Uh, Because whenever I um, think about the construction of the Arab in the United States, he's usually the oily, wealthy, shifty terrorist. And we did see that kind of construction of the Arab in Australia in that post 9-11 era. I'm going to speak specifically about the post 9-11 era because that's the era that we grew up in as Arab Australians. Um, And so it's not only something I'm academically familiar with, but it's also something that I personally went through. But what was interesting about the construction of the Arab identity in Australia is that in addition to that orientalist stereotype that constructs particularly the men as the terrorists, that we saw just before nine eleven, and a kind of demonization of the Arab other as a gangster, you know, a drug dealer, a drive-by uh, shooter, a um, um, and a sexual predator, and there was a series of incidents that kind of began to frame those in th- that that construction. So, for example, um, these. Uh, a, 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 a drive-by shooting at Lakemba Police Station in 1998, um, where Bob Carr at the time had had been searching for what he was calling a Lebanese gang, and uh, there were these rival tensions between, um, you know, the the Asian gangs in the western suburbs of Sydney and the and the Arab or the Middle Eastern gangs, and so what we're seeing here, this is important to know in terms of the chronolog the chronological order of events, is that it was kind of just after Pauline Hansen had emerged. And so there was this strong demonization of, of Asian communities, specifically Vietnamese, in, in the, you know, in 1996. And we were gradually seeing a shift towards Arab communities. And so, you know, incidents like the, the drive-by shooting at Lakemba police station, and then in the year 2000, the Scaf gang rapes, in which a group of young men who were being identified as Lebanese, Middle Eastern, and Muslim, even though they were all Australian born, um, were being identified throughout the nation as, a, as a, a, a Lebanese gang who were targeting white women and raping white women specifically because they were white. And the, the way the media and the politicians had framed it was that it's a problem of Lebanese and Muslim culture uh, being incompatible with white democratic um, culture as though, you know, white men don't have that same kind of history. Um, and so this is why, okay, so I'm gonna make my point now. Um, and so what I find so interesting about the way in which we imagine the Arab other in Australia is that while he, ha- and I talk specifically about the men. We'll, we'll talk, you, we can, you can be the, the expert in the representation Thank of you. women. Um, but while he has something in common with the the Arab other in the United States through that construction of the terrorist, really the demonization of Arab men in that kind of you know, early post 9-11 era looked a lot more like the demonization of African-American men mm-hmm. in the United States. Which is why so much of my research has been based on, and, and of course the Malcolm X research, has been based on the, the kind of symbolic cultural dialogue that's been going on between Arab Australian communities, African-American communities and Arab communities for the past 1500 years.
1: Yeah. Can I get you to read the excerpt um, at the bottom of page 58?
2: Yeah, I can. Um, I was thinking that maybe me and Khalid can make a deal that you can hold the microphone for me (laughs) when I'm reading and I'll hold the microphone for you when you read. As an Arab Australian, I could now hear Malcolm's voice inside my head dismantling the politics of race around me and as a Muslim who could trace his roots back to 5th century Mecca I could suddenly feel Malcolm's spirit weaving itself through my history as the original message of the Prophet Muhammad paved the way for one of the most important civil rights leaders who ever lived. Malcolmites found Mohammedans, Arab Australians found Malcolmites, and I found a black star and a crescent moon rising over the suburbs of Western Sydney.
1: The reason I asked the first question was because I thought um, in that particular way was because I thought it was important that we frame the conversation, uh, particularly given those um, kind of that framework that you've noted uh, that is very defining of the portrayal of Arabs and, and Arab masculinity here in Australia. And so now that we have kind of established that. I do want to delve into the the core of of your piece. And so in her essay, Sitting at the Feet of the Messenger, Remembering Malcolm X, Bell Hook says Malcolm X's two major concerns were his commitment to black liberation and his personal struggle for religious fulfillment as a Muslim. Based on what you've written, I would also add that Malcolm X's journey of literacy is something that features in, in your text. Something tells me that you see this commitment to literacy as the groundwork, as inextricably part of his Muslim identity and his and experience, his struggle for religious fulfillment. Do you think that's an accurate statement? Um, so
2: I mean, let's. So you know, earlier I was making those kind of symbolic connections between, you know, minority identities here, the United States, and then the Arab world. So I'll try to trace that in a concise way. Um, If you just looked at the Sweatshop Literacy Movement, it's the the program that I've been running in the the Western suburbs of Sydney for the past decade, it's it's built on the ideas of bell hooks, um, that all steps towards freedom and justice in any culture are always dependent on mass-based literacy movements because degrees of literacy determine how you see what you see. So that's basically our philosophy in a nutshell as introduced to us by bell hooks. And so we've been able to transform and we've been witnessing the transformation of young people's lives from minority backgrounds in the western suburbs of sydney through literacy through reading writing and critical thinking programs um and of course as you were pointing out that this is a i mean this was for us adopted from the united states from bell hooks and the one of the main figures that bell hooks uses to describe how literacy can transform a person's life is malcolm x and to quote her she says that um, you know, when you look at someone like Malcolm X, you, he charts his intellectual development through literacy. And you can clearly see this in his autobiography that he's you know, while in prison and develops a homemade education for himself um, where he starts with the dictionary, writes out the whole dictionary, learns the dictionary from scratch and all these words as a, 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 an introduction to, to developing what would fundamentally become a civil rights struggle for him. Um, and so we, we see this person transform their life through literacy.
1: Literacy is not just learning to read letters, is it? Well, I argue that
2: literacy is actually the opposite of putting letters together, uh, words together. It's putting being able to pull words apart. And so there is a type of uh, critical consciousness that's associated with the way people like bell hooks talk about literacy. Now, with what, what what's interesting in the autobiography of Malcolm X as a, as a literary text is that... Um, it's part of a genre called the conversion genre. The the idea of the conversion genre uh, and the conversion narrative is that it's based. The whole story is fundamentally based on a huge shift in consciousness from the main character. That's what the principal um, uh, like factor is in in the shape of the story. And a subgenre of the com- of the conversion narrative is called the education narrative, because the conversion happens through education. So Malcolm X's narrative, we could we can easily classify as an, as an education narrative. Now, how does this link to the, the Muslim history, aside from the fact that Malcolm X, you know, his whole struggle was through Islam? Um, well, when I think about the Prophet Muhammad and his narrative, and this is something that you generally don't hear, Usually when we talk about the Prophet Muhammad, we speak about him in kind of miraculous and, and, and you know, like supernatural ways as, a, as this prophet. But at the, f- the foundation of his narrative, the, the life story of the Prophet Muhammad, I argue, and I, I don't argue this controversially, is, is the same as Malcolm X's, which is a literacy narrative. A person who transformed his life through literacy. Now, I, I, I do feel compelled to explain exactly how that is because it's so significant to my research but also significant to anyone that has any interest in Islam and considering there are two billion Muslims on the planet, you should all know this. Um, So, Muhammad's famously known as the illiterate prophet. So, he can't, he doesn't know how to read and write. And he's in the cave of Hira one night, meditating and as the prophecy tells us, uh, the Archangel Gabriel, Zubra'il in Arabic, appears before him with a revelation from God. The angel says, Muhammad, read. And Muhammad replies, I am not one of those who reads. And you have to understand that this is a very significant claim in this Arab context, because there's a very small percentage of the Arab people at the time who are actually literate. The majority of the population are illiterate. They're not readers and writers. And so the prophet says, I'm not one of these people who reads. And then the archangel says back, and this is the first revelation that now comes together as what we call the Quran, which is Muhammad's miracle. The prophet says, Which translates to, Read in the name of your Lord who created, created humankind from a clinging clot." Read, for your Lord is most bountiful, who taught humankind by means of the pen, taught humankind that which they do not know. And so what we're seeing here in the, in the narrative of the Prophet Muhammad is literacy as a miracle. The Prophet is taught this beautiful poetry. He goes down from the mountain blazing with this poetry in a society where poetry and storytelling is fundamental to the culture. And he uses that beautiful poetry to not only change his life and the life of the society around him, but in the year 2019, literally the entire world. And so we're seeing this kind of historical pattern. I I say it's symbolic because, of course, you can find it anywhere. But I see this symbolic pattern between the life story of the Prophet Muhammad, the life story of Malcolm X, and the formation of the sweatshop literacy movement in Bankstown.
1: Definitely <laughs> the natural heirs to the, to the throne. Um, I think that, um, you know, reading your pieces, they were both so rich and uh, so dense that I definitely don't think that we're gonna do them justice in one hour, but I think we can certainly try uh, or kickstart that. Um, now it's your turn to hold the mic for Khalid as he reads his, an excerpt from his essay as well.
3: Think about your sofa. How long have you had it? Think about your mattress, your home. I return to the same places over and over again, each time depositing and shedding skin and bacteria and scents and cells. Some of my cells are in Tokyo or Newcastle or Nairobi, but most of me, the particle vastness of me, is in one of a dozen places that over the course of a lifetime I've called home. They're all there in servers scattered throughout the world, bright red points, each of them full of pieces of my body. You could rebuild the whole of me from those pieces i'm sure of it nothing really dies and wounds don't heal you just continue to revisit them each time adding to them and changing in the process like memories
1: i found your essay to be absolutely cerebral to borrow muhammad's term from our earlier chat um and i said
3: (laughs) he said your brains your brain's too big (laughs) and i'm like oh yeah i don't think so but okay
1: I'd take the compliment. Uh, so I think that um, just uh, what you touch upon, so we as human leave pieces of ourselves everywhere, literally and metaphorically, that we also carry these pieces. They become part of our story, part of someone else's, and part of the history of a place. So to you, uh, the self, in a sense, is ongoing. Is that correct?
3: Um, yeah, it is, it is an ongoing it's an ongoing thing, but also um, i think I think it's just hard to think about. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and we were talking about um, past versions of ourselves and how we we exist through we move through time and we move in time, and we can no longer access who we were in the past and she said something like um... Um I remember being a teenager. I remember being that person, but I'm not that person anymore, and isn't that weird and I'm like, yeah it is it is weird and then I started thinking about like this essay, and um that's that's how I ended up writing it um, I think it's I think a lot of the time, especially when we're writing um about the self, we just worry over points of ourselves as sites, points of anxieties and sites of, you know, interrogation. And I I don't think I have a quarrel with time. I don't think I have a problem with getting older and aging and changing as a person and um, shedding bits and pieces of myself, having um, experiences that I can no longer access, that I can only model in my head through memories. But I find it useful to think about it because I think if I, if we don't, constantly interrogate ourselves, then we're at risk of... Well, I don't want to be glib and say we're at risk of losing ourselves, but um, we're, at, we're at risk of not having the whole of our experience be honoured.
1: Well, I mean, I don't know what's worse based on what you've written, our limitations or our infiniteness. How do you navigate this paradox?
3: Um, I don't. Um, I avoid thinking about it. Um, <laughs> the the essay the essay advice. is uh it's an expression of my worries more than it is any attempt at an answer um i think i think it's just uh, i don't think i don't think limitlessness is within our reach and i't i think it's actually a more a scary thing um, i'm not sure if i had the answer to that i wouldn't have written the essay
1: the way we inherit trauma in our bones the way that in your story you accumulate wounds and old hurts in the body see the body remembers and it rearranges and the body also forgets it's the kind of thing that is universally happening specific to you I wanted to ask where the intersection of your identities you as an Afro black Muslim immigrant man who grew up in Narm, Melbourne where does that come into this so whether and how this shapes the grief work that you do
3: like I grew up, um, you know, my parents um, fled a civil war. Um, we came here in 1993 and um, my whole life I've been dealing with the after effects of that experience, that formative experience that I was literally born in the middle of a war zone where that we were fleeing at the time. And my entire relationship with my parents is formed through the lens of this horrific, traumatic incident that has never. We never talked about it in our family, but we talk about it all the time. And most of my anxieties come. I, I we we tend to find we tend to we're all like psychoanalysts of our own souls, and we tend to locate things in specific places. And for me, it's always been locating, you know, um, a lot of what I worry about locating it in the fact that I grew up with parents who suffer from um, PTSD that manifests itself in various ways. And there's a there's there's a there's a, you know, trauma is intergenerational and it is inherited. Um, but it's also it's also like when we say that it's inherited, we lock up the past and say that was a past and we're dealing with it as present. And what I the way I'm trying to think of it is it's an ongoing project, and i 'm there with them, and they 're here with me and i 'm dealing with the past in the present, and we're dealing with in, with it in the future and I think contextualizing the idea of growing up in this country by looking at where a place that i didn 't grow up and, and experiences that i didn 't have that aren 't mine, I think they 're one in the same, and I think it, towards the end of the essay, I talked a lot about like um how there's a very real link between erasure and memory and remembering and the australian government does a very specific thing where our whole society is founded on uh, um, a a great a grievous sin and then um built upon the erasure of that sin. but there's also There's also a specific act of remembering that is engaged in by settlers, um, especially by um, authorities in this country where um, they believe the term is sites of significance, where the Australian government um, cordons off specific um, sites that are important to um, First Nations people of this country and labels them as sites of significance and also um, um, catalogues them and and historicizes them and there's a there's this cruel link between the founding erasure and the selective remembering that it's that is reflected at every level and it's reflected within our society and it's reflected within our families and it's reflected in our in myself and I'm absolutely complicit in this in my day-to-day life I um, I engage selectively and I remember selectively and I think about the fact that we start events by doing an acknowledgement of country which is really important but i think that there's also similarly important thing is to do that in your own life and to think about that in your own life and to not have the act of remembering be cordoned off inside with inside specific contexts so like once I, there's a lot of like universal and personal links there and i Try to make sense of it, but i don't think there is an i don't think there is an ethical form of remembering, but there I think there is an ethical form of remembering, but I think we've been habituated not to yeah, manage the managing of memories yeah, as well yeah. for that
1: very political reason perhaps mm. um, and I think that you know you mentioned something around the mourning of what you don't have the loss because insofar as you mourn and grieve for what you have here, you also mourn for what you could have had. Um, and I think those things are sometimes, you know, they go hand in hand. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about Baldwin, uh, of course, because, you know, that's uh, kind of the, the, you know, he's the fundamental, uh, well, I won't, maybe not inspiration, but certainly, you know, you lean on him quite a bit in your writing and just in your wider day-to-day, it seems. So for me, I mean, you know, you you say you borrow authority from Baldwin uh, mm-hmm. in the piece, um, but I also, I, you know, I read that you, there there's, in the piece there's a bit of borrowing around anxiety and borrowing around answers. Um, you know, the questions might be your own, um, but maybe even, hopefully, borrowing reassurance about your black body. And so, and this is just my reading of it, so mm. I, I wanted to ask how Baldwin's writing helped you navigate and know, it, if, if it at all did, helped you navigate and know place and space and self, given what you've just said.
3: Um. I think I think the um I think one thing about this um essay was the way the way it was written was I I wrote this essay over a course of about a year and a half um and there's some sections that refer to um events that happened a few months ago and there's other sections that refer to events that happened a few years ago um and the way the way uh, I wrote the essay is that every paragraph is situated within the time that it was written, not within the time of the essay itself, um, and that's something that I picked up from um, reading um, James Baldwin when 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 he went to um, Switzerland specifically. There was this series of essays that he wrote um, before and after his European. Um, I, I I I was trying to say exile. But yeah. Self-imposed um, yeah, yeah yeah and the beautiful thing about his writing during this period is that it's 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 you were witnessing a mind changing and a person changing and were and he's working through things and you read um, originally I, I remember I um, once read an abridged version of his essays um, that I think penguin has a few of those on on different writers and i I'm not sure if it's a penguin issued collection but there was an abridged version that had. Mm-hmm. Um, the beginning of one essay and the end of another essay that was set th- and they were separated by um, ellipses and the way those essays were located so specifically in the time of their writing and you see a person changing through there was a there was a te- I was engaging with a text as a collage almost and I saw it just I it made my head spin when I was reading two temporarily dislocated essays that through the gap between them show the passage of time Um, and that's one way that I try to replicate it in this essay of course there's also the fact that I can only really write meandering and vague um, things so maybe that maybe that's me leaning to my strengths a little bit. Ellipses are good for that yeah yeah (laughs) you can just put anything (laughs) in between (laughs) them but um, (laughs) it's a it's it's like so you know it was more a formula for um, stylistic choice but it was also one that was clearly inspired by him and I felt necessary within the essay to acknowledge the debt that I owe to him and his work because he he informed a lot of how I think about myself um even through the fact that he was there and thinking about himself who allowed me to be able to um it was I I don't know I, I sometimes I sometimes think writers do us or artists just in general do us a tremendous kindness just by existing and by allowing us into their lives and I r- am really thankful for that and I try to reflect that as much as I can, um, even if it means quoting long chunks of text within the text.
1: You reminded me of this passage that I read recently. I was rereading one of my favorite uh, Palestinian uh, Brooklyn-raised poets, Sohair Hamad, in her uh, kind of seminal collection of poetry, uh, black Palestinian, and she says something like, I don't want to misquote her, uh, but essentially that um, She wrote these poems at a specific location, physically, at a specific place, time in her life, and that if you were to ask her to write write them now like she's a different person she can't ru- write those same things and she might not believe those same things but it was a really interesting disclaimer i guess for me as a writer because of course you know we look back at our writings well, i don't know about you but i sometimes look back and i'm like oh cringe you know i can't believe i wrote that but it's just very interesting that to have that conviction to produce that work then and there but then to know that it's okay that it come a year or two or down the line and you're just going to be very different to what you've produced, and you might not necessarily, yeah, still feel the same about that piece of work.
3: Yeah, it's 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 a it's an interesting um, thing to look back on work and still be. Um, uh, it's 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 strange because we we can't exist in two places That's at once. I love um, the
1: paragraphs that, that you've
3: done. Y- uh, yeah, and like, it's really it's really interesting because like in in the physical world, um, the physical world that we exist in is so much more stranger. Than the world, our subjective experience of the world, where the idea of something existing in two places at once is actually a relatively straight, straightforward proposition. When it comes to the physical laws of the universe, particles don't need a lot of coercion to exist in two places at once. Um, but we can't do that. Um, and when the way our minds work, we model the past through memories. But we don't we don't access memories, and we don't read memories, and we don't watch memories happen. Whenever we have memories, the parts of our brains that fire are the parts of our brains that, are, that concern themselves with temporality and place. So we literally recreate uh, the subjective experience of the memory every time we access it. And that's a process that's destructive. So, there's a, so that very idea of remembering is a destructive process and memories get overridden and changed as you grow older and get warped as well. Um, and they seem to be, the, 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 the brain seems to prioritize cohesion in memories when they're related to traumatic incidents or emotionally charged um, incidents. Which is why we tend to have a, a vivid memory when we're emotionally engaged. And that can be anything, as doesn't have to be um, bad memories, it can be um, memories of that are positive. But it's 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 a strange it's a strange thing, and um, in this essay, it's an attempt to grapple with the idea of not being able to be, having any engagement with the past be only in an apparent in a apparent relationship, but not an actual relationship.
1: Memory and meaning. So, noting the distinct identity of African American culture as rooted in the historical experience, sorry, historical experience of slavery. In reading your essay, Muhammad, there is a clear belief in the existence of a shared struggle, a symbiotic uh, communal relationship. In other words, that we as a community took from African-American scholarship and resistance work, but clearly that also individuals like Malcolm X took from us as Muslims, and specifically the Arab Muslim tradition, so that Malcolm X found meaning here. So can you expand a little bit on that?
2: Um, Yeah, okay. Um, All right. So um, the first time that I was introduced to the term non-black person of color was immediately after Muhammad Ali died. Um, A tweet had kind of gone out from a young black woman in the United States that went viral. And she basically said, I'm calling out non-black people of color who are identifying with Muhammad Ali. Let's get something straight. He's our champion, not yours. And I was, I was gutted, actually. I was so heartbroken, not when I saw the tweet, but when I was introduced to the term non-black people of colour because I'd been working in the western suburbs of Sydney in solidarity with the minority groups against what was a very clear threat to all of us, you know, the threat of white supremacy. And more specifically than that, I really didn't feel like that tweet was in the spirit of Muhammad Ali's life struggle, you know? I mean, I'm not sure how much you know about Muhammad Ali, but probably the most famous incident in his career outside the boxing ring was when he refused to fight in Vietnam. And, you know, he lost the best years of his boxing career for that, for that struggle. He refused to fight, he refused to, to go to war in Vietnam, and the government took his world title away. And they, that was the prime of his life, so it was a huge sacrifice for him. And when he was confronted about it, he said, no Vietnamese person has ever called me the N-word. And there were two things that were really interested, uh, uh, interesting about, about Muhammad Ali's resistance to the government. The first is that it was very clearly in solidarity and in support of African-American, of the African-American struggle. So, you know, he was very clear, He's like, why should I go and fight for this government, you know, across the world, um, when they won't even fight for me here? But the other part of that was that he was genuinely concerned about the injustices that were being committed against the Vietnamese. He was very clear in his rhetoric and in his campaigning that he didn't want to go and fight these people of colour that had done nothing to the United States. and, you know, for me, I mean, my name is Muhammad and I didn't, my parents did not name me after Muhammad Ali. Uh, my parents named me after the Arab prophet. And growing up, uh, you know, as a minority, as a young person with, a, with an ethnic name, a, a name that's heavily demonised, it was actually very empowering for me and very special that there was this living being who had made such a tremendous contribution to, to civil rights. Um, and he had my name, you know, and my brother's name is Ali. So, you know, we, we proudly carried those names. And, you know, Muhammad Ali was born Cassius Clay, it was a slave name. And and he, when he changed his name as part of his enrollment in the nation of Islam, when he changed it, he said, my, my, my name is now Muhammad Ali. I'm Muhammad for knowledge and, of course, I was telling you earlier about Muhammad, the Prophet Muhammad's miracle being the miracle of literacy, that, you know, Muhammad, he had the name Muhammad for knowledge, and Ali, which means most high, and I mean, he was using the Arabic language when he says these names mean this, he means what they mean in Arabic. And so, I just felt like there was something about, you know, the figure of Muhammad Ali, and before him, Malcolm X, which is described by an Arab-American scholar named Suhail Dalatsai, which is called the Muslim International. And, you know, when Malcolm X went to, um, to the Middle East, he, um, you know, Dulatsai argues that he created a bridge between, between Asia and Africa through the Middle East. And what was started as an African-American struggle confined to the United States had now become the third world struggle against the global movement against white supremacy. Um, and, you know, by extension of that, you, you know, Sahel book is called Black Star Crescent Moon and you might remember from the quote I read in my essay, by extension of that, the Arab Australian experience and the experiences of people of colour in Australia also fit into that Black Star Crescent Moon discourse. Um, I want to make one really important observation, to, just to finish my point. It's that conflation with racism and slavery Which is where I think things get a bit sensitive, you know, like that, that, you know, when, when, when non-black people of colour try to talk about racism, you know, our histories associated with slavery, the Arab uh, history with, with black slavery, for example, comes up and creates a friction between us. But here's the thing that's really important to understand is that we're not actually talking about slavery. That's really not my area, and that's really not my concern as an Arab-Australian writer. You know, um, I always talk about racism, and you can get five Arab-Australian scholars to sit on a panel and talk about their experiences of racism, and the the question of slavery won't come up once. And I'll tell you why. It's because that conflation, that's very specific to the black experience, the African slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade in the united that, that you know that resulted in 160 million africans being enslaved in the united states that was a, a, a slave trade that was built on racism as an institution and so when you're talking about the african american experience it it's very hard to separate the two we, you know it's you, you think about them as, as the same thing but for, for for me as an arab we're only talking about racism and, and this, is, this is the last point I want to make that, you know, Malcolm X went to, the, to, to Mecca in the, in, the, in the last phase of his life. He went, to, he went to Mecca and when he came back from Mecca, after he'd done his pilgrimage, he, he said publicly that he believed that the Arab world and the, the politics that he'd seen in the Arab world, specifically during his pilgrimage, could solve America's race problem. And I, and I just think that's really important to understand specifically because he didn't say, I think the Arab world can solve America's slavery problem. This is the, the, the discussions we're trying to have and the, the solidarity we're trying to build is very specific to the phenomenon of racism.
1: Yeah. I guess that's the key question, then, or the point that, um, based on what you're saying, I mean, I just note that, you know, the hybrid Islam, the 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 kind of religion that we're talking about, Islam as is the natural religion of the black man, was specifically designed then to empower people whose languages and cultures and histories had been torn away from them, you're, which yeah. ha, is different to the Arab experience. So you're,
2: you're, you're specifically quoting what you were just saying there, just That's to be right. clear, is you're specifically <laughs> quoting the way the black Muslim movement in the United States articulated That's right. their relationship to Islam That's and why right. they were all converting in, in record numbers.
1: Yes, and so I guess the question here is, given Malcolm X's last words, what do you see as a role? That, I mean, is that something that still exists today? Is there a role for us to play in that solidarity? I mean, do, do, do you think that if you know he were around in 2019, he'd be saying the same thing? Is there something that we need to be doing to change that or carry that legacy in a different way as Arab mm, mm. Muslims and black yeah, Muslims? Mm,
2: mm. Um, look, you know, you know the, the thing is that, I mean, I, and you would know about this, but the amount of interactions I've had, and, you know, Carla and I have been talking the last couple of days. Uh, the amount of conversations I've had with um, my black brothers and sisters about anti-blackness in Arab communities, you know? And the reason why I find that discussion difficult to swallow is because I think human beings, all human beings, are anti-everything. They're anti-every other human being. You know, that, that it's true. Like, I, I wouldn't deny the, like anti-blackness in Arab communities. But I saw, growing up, horrendous anti-Aboriginal attitudes in Arab communities. And anti-Asian attitudes, you know, I, there was nothing to me about the community that I grew up in that was unique about one particular type of prejudice. There was, there was prejudice pretty much across the board. And this is what's most interesting about Arabs. And, you know, I'm not going to speak for another community you here. Only, but yeah. here's what's so interesting about Arabs. The group that they're most xenophobic towards are other Arabs. <laughs> and, the, and, you know, the, the carving up of the Middle East... And the horrendous violence that our the people internalized have,
1: colonization. have
2: enacted against each other. Yes. And, and so he, well, I, I, wanna, I just want to get to the crux of this because, um, you know, when, we, when we're talking about this like prejudice, and, and we say that, you know, we, we, we see it across all communities. Um, what I think is really dangerous is if we play that game. You know, like if we, if we wrestle with one another in this kind of uh, oppression Olympics, and I'll, I'll, I'll show you why. Because, you know, like, like I'm a big fan of Malcolm X, a big fan of Martin Luther King. They, they really framed so much of my understanding and, and language around the civil rights struggle. But particularly with Martin Luther King, I was incredibly critical of a lot of his positions, specifically on the Middle East. You know, that he was a, a, like a, a defender of the state of Israel. At the same time, when Malcolm X was one of the first black intellectuals that speaking out against Israel and identifying the colonisation, the process of colonisation that that it took to create that state. But, you know, Obama dropped more bombs on Iraq than um, Bush did. And any time Israel slaughtered Palestinian civilians, Obama always had the same statement, which is, uh, Israel has a right to defend itself. And, you know, even his predecessor, George Bush, I mean, he was... there was a lot of, like, black politicians who were instrumental in the the catastrophes in Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, people like Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice. And I just think if we play that game where we're like, well, you know, there's anti-blackness in your community, well, there's anti-Arabness in your community, it's literally where the the civil rights struggle goes to die. It's over, you know, because none of us are going to come out with clean hands. And so what my essay's about and what my work has always been about is is trying to build solidarity among people of colour in the direct struggle against white supremacy and actively ignoring and shutting down any lateral violence, that's any violence that comes from people of colour tearing each other down in this discourse.
1: Carla, do you want to add anything?
3: Well, uh, I think we were talking a little bit. We had We had a conversation the other day about um, constructions of... Identity also, like, and and um, I think we were talking specifically about Afro-pessimism. Um I don't, I don't know what the answer to that p- 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 um, question is, is. Is and I know that within. I don't know how. I don't know. How, I don't. I I can't. Str. I, I struggle with the question of lateral violence within um, liberation struggles, and I think that, of course there's this fundamental notion that we all have to really really sink our teeth into and understand is that there's no mutually exclusive liberation um and but there can be mutually exclusive prejudices and and also biases and um, hurts and harms that can be caused and i think i mean like i don't have a problem with setting aside Um, or shutting down lateral violence and working towards a common role and building solidarity. Um, But but that said, I also do think that it's important to always interrogate ourselves and and, and understand where where we're coming from and place ourselves within um, the context that we we are in. And that self-reflexivity is absolutely vital. Um, And if we don't do it to ourselves, if I if I'm not being self reflexive, if I'm not un- criticizing myself and being critical of my own positionality or perspective, then I want someone else to do that. Um, and I think that's what solidarity sometimes means. It means people, I people holding each other um, to a standard and calling not so much calling each other up but building each other up. Um, and I think yeah, that's the other side of it. But it, there's there's a there's a there's a popular construction of that specific ethic that can be misconstrued as, um, in some way, destructive. Mm. But I don't think it's. I don't think it's necessarily always destructive.
1: Mm. I think self-reflection and uh, holding, uh, you know, holding each other accountable. I suppose. And I just want to end on the before we open up uh, questions on the three words that you mentioned in your essay around a uh, generosity of spirit and love and writing around that and I think that's I guess important to keep in mind when we do this kind of work whether in our writing and or in our anti-racism work as well. Questions? Where to start? Okay, cool. Uh, in a lot of Baldwin's writing it's almost as if he's
4: like speaking to the future like his work is eerily like apt for today, um, and like Muhammad, like you said, with Malcolm X, you know, he's someone whose life reflects this um, desire for gaining literacy, and um, he, he he's even said himself, like, I, my my life is an act of changes, right? So I guess you know, could you kind of um, speculate? I'm always interested, like, what would someone like him, where would he, what would he be thinking about about issues of today? You know, um, he kind of was looking to a more, who's going towards a more internationalist approach at the end of his life. Um, I wonder what, what Marco X today would be saying about things like climate change or those kinds of things.
3: Well, um, I think Malcolm X did talk a little bit about ecocide, um, um, but also I always get stuck on that question about what would this person say if they were alive today, but the, the real, I, I think flipping around and asking ourselves, well, what, did they, what, what were they trying to do in their lifetime and how did their experiences, or how did th- their, their thoughts, contextualize their present moment in a way that I can also take that model and apply it to my present day? But also, uh, but also like James Baldwin's conception of um, his writing included the future. Um, his work was very expansive, and he, 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 and and there's this there's this such a long tradition in um, African American um, culture of 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 not it's not so much speculative, um, but it's also f- a futuristic sensibility of, um, well, let's look towards our children. Let's let's there's also the um, let's look towards what the generation that's coming after us. How can we improve things for them? And and I think the most you, know, you see in recent writers like Dan Hasey Coates writing a letter to his um, son. Um, you see um, James Baldwin, literally writing a book called The Fire Next Time. Um, and Malcolm X, towards the end of the li- uh, end of his life, he saw he saw a future in a way that his contemporaries probably didn't. And I think that's what you were talking about, Muhammad, with with his conception of, um, you know, his idea of taking um, practices and be- and belief systems or uh, an ethic of seeing the world rooted in um, that he learned when he was in in Mecca, and finding a way to apply that to the present day. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I'll pick up where you lift off. You know, you're, you're absolutely right that, that the, the Malcolm X narrative is completely built on changes. And Malcolm, you know, is constantly repeating that my whole life is a series of changes. And so we genuinely don't know how far he, he was capable of going with his position. But what there's, a, there's a unanimous like, agreement among scholars that he was really only getting started. And that you know that we that we we really didn't see particularly, um, particularly through like the film and the autobiography that that really a, a comprehensive job of showing you where his trajectory was headed was not done. Um, but I want to say something a little bit more personal, which is, I'm kind of this is and this is going to sound morbid, but I'm kind of grateful he's dead, you know, because I think that you know, longevity, the longer a human being exists, the more likely it is that they are going to reveal to us that they're just human beings, you know? And that all the kind of flaws reveal themselves. And, you know, one of the essays that I'd researched for my essay was by Peter Daly, who argued that for most people who are fans of Malcolm X, he's more a mythic presence than a historical figure, you know? And I want to talk about that mythic presence for a moment, because this is really where legacy, like, where, where like, you know, living after you're dead actually comes into contact with literature, you know, because we're writers. And all of my work is about teaching young people to read and write. And, you know, Malcolm X has this um, famous quote, it's in the autobiography, but, but, you know, people kind of quote it outside of reading the autobiography, which is that it's the squeaky hinge that gets the grease. You know, and, and it's his point that like, that he was, you know, in distinction to his many siblings, that he was the noisy kid. And because he was the noisy kid, he always got something back. Uh, he got attention. And that, you know, that was kind of like the perfect temperament and the perfect personality for a civil rights leader. That, you know, if you want change, you need to be loud. Um, and you know, it doesn't go beyond me how loud I am, by the way. But but here's, here's the thing, you know, like when I'm when I'm in a cl- like I, you know, when I'm teaching creative writing at a school, the creative writing component is really the tool. What I'm actually interested in is is teaching critical thinking, like like how a person reimagines their reality through writing. And so, one of the exercises that I always run with kids is I get I, I bring I get two pictures up on a on a wall. You know, one is a picture of the Middle East, and one is a picture of the White. European depictions of Jesus, you know, with the blonde hair and the white skin and the blue eyes, you know, and I ask the kids, who is this? They say, it's Jesus. Then I I, I bring out the world map and I ask the kids, where is, where is Jesus from? And, you know, generally the kids that know will point to this middle spot between Asia and Africa, and they'll say, that's where he's from. And it's like, the question I ask is, what do people look like? Two thousand years ago, from that part of the world, and you know, just thinking about Malcolm X as a mythic presence. Every time I teach that exercise, there's a squeaky hinge, you know, in the background making noise, and I don't think about what would Malcolm X say if he was here. I am trying to be Malcolm X in that moment, and we evoke the memory of his of his struggle and of his lessons every time. A young person in Australia comes to some kind of critical consciousness.
1: Mm-hmm. And also the whitewashed Instagram posts is where his memory goes to die. So just mm-hmm. noting
3: that. I think it's also um, important to note that like, when we're talking about legacies, we, uh, for, for example, when it comes to Malcolm X, I, I find it more interesting to read about the ways in which we enact ourselves upon the text in the present day and the way we contextualize his work for our present day that is uh, there's a lot of work being done there and the the critical analysis of his work is a continuation of his legacy and is just as important as the original text themselves and i think there's a lot of work being done there there's a lot there's always the these people like these um mythic figures they reverberate through time and we enact their lives in different ways, in different contexts. And that in itself is a way that they live past their death. And that's the way, I don't know, life beyond death for all of us.
1: I'm interested in what you said earlier around I know it's not my turn anymore <laughs> but I just wanted to ask about um, what you said around him living long enough to make mistakes and I know that we know plenty of leaders that we do uh, look up to and idolize who are also mythic in their own ways who have made mistakes and I don't necessarily know if I ascribe to this idea of you know moral absolutism so do you, do you think that there's mm-hmm. in our honoring of them and our mythic immemorializing of them that there's just no room for for mistakes, because I think well, that that yeah. makes it easier for us to relate and to learn and to reproduce
3: well, a good thing that happened with Malcolm X's death is that the FBI closed down the active investigation into him and we've seen how um state sanctioned uh, bullying campaigns have have to completely recontextualized our ideas of people like Martin Luther King, for example you know what i you know what I think about with with this
2: question right there's a there's a very famous like Uh, like contemporary Orthodox Muslim uh, preacher, I think his name is Khalid Khalid Yassin, and I saw him give a lecture on Malcolm X where he said that Malcolm X had only become a mu'min, and that's like a believer who's worthy of heaven, in the last three months of his life, after he'd gone to Mecca and converted to Orthodox Islam. Because the Islam that he had learned from the Nation of Islam was really a kind of like an abomination of Islam. You know, it was uh, like a mixture of like social Darwinism, Islam, you know, passages and and ideas from the Bible. Um, You know, it had claimed that Fahd Muhammad, the founder of the Nation of Islam, was literally Allah. that That Elijah Muhammad was the prophet or the messenger, the apostle, as opposed to... You know, our, the Allah that we were taught as Muslims is unseen, un, you know, untouchable, doesn't have a physical image, mm-hmm. is not a man. Um, and, and the idea that the Prophet Muhammad in the 5th century is the last prophet of God. So, you know, they, the, the, this spin, this kind of different version of Islam um, that the black Muslim movement had taught Malcolm X in the early stages of his trajectory m- made him in the eyes of, of scholars like Khalid Yassin a non-believer, that he wasn't a true Muslim. And that it was only in the last three months of his life when he went to Mecca and converted to Orthodox Islam that he had become the kind of person that's worthy of heaven. And were and and the argument was that were it not for those last three months, Malcolm X would be in hell now. That was the that was the 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 idea behind the claim. And so I just when I heard that I just didn't agree that that's how we measure a person's life. You know, the last thing you do or, you know, what you are in the last moment of your life is who you are for eternity. Um, and this is the reason, because when you look at Malcolm X's narrative, when you look at the the, the, the core function of what the, the story is about, it, it's not it doesn't really matter, you know, what his conversions were. It doesn't matter that he was a pimp that he was a drug dealer, there he was a gangster, then he was in jail, and then he was a, a minister for the Nation of Islam, and then he was the leader of his own um, Muslim movement in the United States, that, that, and, and at the end of his life that he was a Hajj, you know, a, a person who had made the pilgrimage to Mecca. It didn't matter, those individual things didn't matter. What actually matters is the, the, the idea of change itself, that his life is a series of changes you know and it's it's that's the narrative that i think is actually incorruptible because what it means is that when we assess malcolm x even in his youth even in the most destructive and 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 wretched days of his life you know and there are so many claims that for example that he was a homosexual prostitute um and, and that you know he was a pimp that was uh, organizing you know these pretty perverse uh, sexual encounters between people and and, but, but what matters is the fact that, he, that, that his life story was constantly transforming to create a full life. And so, yeah, for me, it doesn't, the, the, the question of like, oh, whether you're perfect or not, it, it doesn't, mm. it's, the, it's the kind of, the symbolic gesture that matters.
3: I guess we have Alex Haley to thank for that yeah. um, <laughs> specific conception of him.
2: Yeah. I, I, in the autobiography, yes.
0: Yeah. Unfortunately, I think we only have time for one more question.
4: Gentlemen, thank you for such a, um, an engaging night, and Sarah, thank you for doing such a great job sharing it. Um, I have a question about hope and the idea of a possibility of a better future. And Muhammad, I know that, um, well, in Islam there is an idea, as in all the major religions, I think of the next life, of a better life, maybe even of a utopian vision. And I'm wondering when you're a racialized person, and obviously there's a lot of pain that's associated with that, and I think Khaled brought that out in a very... Um, in, in, a, ..in a really powerful way. What, what, is, your, what is your hope for, uh, for the future? Or is there an idea of, of hope that drives you? And, and Khaled, I'd like to hear from you as well, but I, I guess more about reimagining.
3: Um, I'm not sure if, uh, if I... Really, find hope useful. Um, I
1: thought this was going to be a positive note to end <laughs> on, but I guess not. <laughs>
3: it's I. I just don't need it, and it doesn't help me do the work that I need to do. Um, and I think. I think like just. I don't, I don't. I don't know. That's. I just feel that way. I don't. I, I could justify it but I'd be coming up with things to say right now. <laughs> but um, I'd refrain from doing that. But it's, it's it, yeah, uh, I don't know. It's just this feeling that I have. And um, Toni Morrison speaks very eloquently about this. Um, she has an essay that she gave to the National Institute of Humanities. And she um, writes really eloquently about what time actually is and the construction of time and she has this beautiful lens survey of literary time and literariness and the work of literature and the work of time in our, in our lives. And in no, and the word she, in this, it's a speech, but it's also printed in an essay. What she seeks to define or redefine for us not isn't the idea of a future that exists that we can aspire to, but a means of interrogating what this, what do we mean by a future? What do we mean by time? What do we mean by a present? And she shows that our our concepts are constructions. Um, in every way that we choose to think about them, they're things that are constructed. And if they can be constructed, then they can be deconstructed. And if they can be deconstructed, that's the work of um, decolonizing our minds and our uh, expanding our horizons and thinking about um, a world that where at a subject formation level, our um, uh, the way we look at the world is sensitive to who we are and our intersecting um, um, positions in the world, and the ways that we relate to each other. and And I just don't. I just don't see how. I just don't see how I can simplify the idea of a future by placing it, some placing or or imposing something upon it. So I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not
2: going to um, brighten up the mood either. Um, but, so, you know, I'll just, uh, you know, and I, the way the West has kind of imagined Jesus, you know, constructed Jesus as like a pacifist. And, I, you know, there's this Iranian-American uh, Muslim scholar named Reza Aslan who was in a debate on CNN, because, you know, that kind of white fantasy of Jesus is like, Jesus is all about love and Jesus, you know, Jesus is all about equality. And I remember seeing Reza Aslan one time in one of these debates say look I, I know that the west would love to think of Jesus as Gandhi but you know Gandhi's like message of non-violence that is not a product of the of first century Palestine that concept just didn't exist and you know the thing about the the fantasy version of Jesus is you know equality for all you know uh, which is why so many of these kind of like, you know, big celebrities in the United States, like Oprah, have been able to kind of be, you know, like, like kind of claim that their, their work and their, their identities are so heavily associated with this kind of version of, of Christianity. But, you know, I think Jesus, more than anything else, was really clear, for example, on what was going to happen to the rich when they die, you know? I mean, the, the famous quote was that, you know, a, a camel has a better chance of getting through the eye of a needle than a rich man has of getting to heaven. And so, the reason why this is important to, to understand is because I really think that Jesus' message, the original message, and if you look at the, 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 the gospel, you know, the, the biblical text, you see this in the text, that Jesus was not about equality. He was about reversal. He wasn't just saying, you know, the the poor are going to dine in heaven with me. He was saying, and the rich are going to burn in hell, you know? And so where am I going with this as my hope for the future? (laughs) You know, if I was being like generous about the current state of literature, I would say that, you know, people of colour, of all shades, in this country are horrendously underrepresented i think the figures even though we don't have them officially it's about it's not even 5% based on you know loose estimations that we have not even 5% of the of the literature that's published in this country represents the cultural and linguistic diversity of our reality. The reality I'm literally looking at right now.
1: And not to mention all the, sorry, the publishing space as well. So it's Mm -hmm. not just those producing, it's the entire, you know, kind of industry. And so,
2: you know, when I'm having conversations about diversity as the director of Sweatshop, it always looks like I'm saying, wouldn't it be nice if it was 50-50? It looks like that's what I'm saying, but I'm not Gandhi either. I'm operating in the same way of thinking that Jesus was operating in and so what I want to see is the reversal where we the culturally and linguistically diverse communities are dining in heaven
1: All right, see most of you in heaven. Safe travels and have a good evening. Thanks, everyone.
0: Thanks for listening to another Gleebooks Author Talk, brought to you by Gleebooks in collaboration with 2SER. If you'd like to be a part of the action next time, please visit gleebooks.com.au bookings. We'd love to see you there.